Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Something to Talk About. I'm Randy Wartelski, and I thank you so much for joining me here at the Nahum Siegel Network. A parent's dream becomes their worst nightmare when their child has a diagnosis. And in an instant, life goes from being rosy and regular to being difficult and dreary. And in situations like these, or in any challenging life situation, one asks many questions, sometimes getting answers, but more often not. How we handle our personal struggle, whatever that personal struggle may be, is the biggest challenge of all. Hear one little girl's story, the story that went viral and became everyone's story, the story of Ayelet Yakira Galina, and how she became everyone's eye on Ayelet. But perhaps even bigger than that, hear the story of two people who turned their personal struggle into positive action. We welcome Hindi Pupko Galina. Hindi Pupko Galina is the Director of Israel and International Affairs at the Jewish Community Relations Council of New York, she also serves as Executive Director of the Council of Young Jewish Presidents, the umbrella for 25 professional organizations. She holds a master's degree in public policy in Israel studies from NYU and is a Wexner graduate fellow alum. And in November 2012, Hindi was named to the forwards list of the most 50, 50 most influential Jews in America that year. And that is only that is not even related to why she is here today, but she happens to be obviously very intelligent, very well-spoken, which you'll hear in a couple of minutes. Hindi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's tell people, what is the other side of Hindi Pupko? Who's Hindi Pupko and what is Ayelet Galina's story? Sure. So first of all, thank you again for having me. Um, so much of what my husband Seth and I have been doing over the course of the past few months has been speaking about our story and it's an honor to be given the opportunity here today. So I guess for the, you know, in the context of our interview, I'm mostly known as Ayelet's mom and that's really um, I guess the best title of all and the greatest honor. Um, people started to follow our story when our daughter Ayala was first diagnosed with a very rare disorder called dyskeratosis congenita. And when we first were told of the diagnosis, I think we had questions that um, hopefully no one will experience or people have, which is, do we tell people? What do we do? And I think we recognized at the very early stages of our journey that we were going to need our community support. And at the very least, we owed them our honesty and our authenticity. And if we were going to be calling upon them for help, they had to know what was really going on. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into this over the course of the interview. But essentially what occurred was we created a really simple Facebook page to let our friends and family know what was going on. Um, we needed to find a perfect bone marrow match for our daughter Ayala to undergo a transplant which would not have been a cure for her disease, but was a necessary step for us to take. And it was really through our partnership with Gift of Life that Ayelet's story became larger than life. And then we continued to chronicle her journey as she underwent the transplant process in Cincinnati. Um, and obviously, despite all of our hopes and dreams, and a lot of people's hopes and dreams for Ayelet, she passed away on January 31st, 2012, as a result of complications from the transplant. And she was how old? She was about two years and two months. And how old was she when she was diagnosed? So she, we got the official diagnosis just after her first birthday. Uh, but when she, she was born um, premature, she was born at 32 weeks. I wasn't feeling the baby went into the hospital and they thought they saw that she wasn't growing properly. It was all pretty unexpected since obviously I was being monitored like all pregnant women are all along. Um, at the time we thought that it was just random, you know, whatever it was, there were issues 
Um, and then she came home from the NICU. And around six months of age, we saw that she just wasn't growing at the rate that that one thought she would, despite her prematurity. She wasn't eating in the way that you would want a child to be eating. And of course, there were many plausible explanations for this. But after trying to rule out things like dairy allergies or minor GI complications, um, we, we thankfully were put in the hands of a doctor at CHOP, which is the uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and they were able to diagnose her. Um, and it's a disease that for a, a female child is one in four million. So we were actually wow. quite lucky, as weird as it may seem, that we were able to find a diagnosis. Wow. And at the beginning, when you got the diagnosis, what, what was running through your head? My husband and I were actually just recalling uh, that memory um, really recently. It literally felt like the world had just crashed before our eyes. It was one of those moments where you wake up the next morning and when something great happened the next the day, the day before you wake up and you're so happy that whatever happened wasn't just a dream. And this was the opposite of that. Um, almost the morning after was worse than hearing of the diagnosis itself because I guess, there, you know, we first heard about it, there's adrenaline, there's a lot of things going on. And then the news sets in the next morning. And we, you know, devastated does not do it justice. We were uh, beyond devastated. We felt like the world as we knew it had just crumbled before us. Now, you and your husband were based in New York. Yes, we live on the Upper West Side. Both of you work full time. Yes. And you went to Philadelphia. And had and what was the next step from there? So we, we pretty much saw every doctor under the sun and everyone has, oh, I know the best. This is the expert. And especially in the Jewish community, we're good at finding the best in the medical and the, the medical profession. It was a long, long journey until we figured out what was going on. We went to every hospital in New York. We were in Cincinnati at one point, then back to Philadelphia. Once we got the diagnosis, which was um, around January 2010 or 2011, um, 2011, we thought that we had no options. And then at a subsequent visit to CHOP in Philly, we learned that at the very least we could perform a bone marrow transplant. And then this would address the most fatal aspects of the disease, although again, would not have been a cure. There was no, there is no such thing, but at least it gave us something to do. And the worst feeling in life is when you have no action plan, at least for someone like me who's really good at to-do lists. When there's nothing on your to-do list, that's the worst place to be. So we were just happy that there was something under the sun that we could do. Um, we immediately contacted Gift of Life, which is the Jewish Bone Marrow Registry. Um, Gift of Life was created because Jews are unfortunately underrepresented in the universal donor registries, which is problematic. Um, and we were devastated to learn that no perfect match existed. So you had bad news on top of bad news on top of bad news. Um, and thankfully, we turned to our community for help, and they responded in a way that we never could have imagined. There were bone marrow drives for a yellet, not even just across the country, but really around the world. There were drives in Israel and Canada, all across the United States, mostly from strangers who would email us and say, I don't know you, but I'm doing this, I'm doing this drive. And because of all the drives that were run in search for a match for a yellet, over 60 other matches were found for people in search of a transplant. And until today, I get emails saying, thanks to drives run for your daughter, this person found a match. Obviously, wow. they don't reveal their name, but the circumstances. And it makes us feel like in some way Ayala is still alive because the magic of her spirit and her story really lives on. Definitely. And potentially even more people could find matches through all the people that were tested as a result of 
Absolutely. When you had to tell your family, how how difficult was that? Extremely difficult. I mean, it was sort of like we all had this gut feeling in our stomach like something was really wrong. Once we ruled out all the easy reasons for why she wasn't eating or why she wasn't growing, and once it was clear that, you know, half of her immune system wasn't functioning, there's no good answer to that. So our family was already prepared that, you know, for hearing that something really serious was going on. But I I think we thought that worst case, she'll need a transplant. Uh, but yet here we were in a scenario where best case, you can do a transplant. Um, but that's by no means the end of your journey. I think we were all shocked, but honestly, we, we sprang into action so quickly that there wasn't really a period of wallowing or feeling sorry for ourselves. Not that that might not have been the psychologically prudent thing to do. It's just not the way we function as a family. So immediately we just started to act and do whatever we could to try to, you know, make the best case scenario occur. So your first stop was Facebook. Yes. And had you been an active Facebook user before that? My husband's definitely better on Facebook than I am, mostly because he's funnier in writing than I am. So he, you know, obviously we each were on Facebook. Um, and then, you know, Seth has a website called bangitout.com, which he started with his brother. So they're no strangers to using the web to get their message out. So thanks to sort of Bang It Out's following and Seth's, you know, just facility with Facebook and internet mediums, he really got this going and started to get our story out. And I think he wrote it in a way, and subsequently the blog, which we can talk about, but he wrote all of our updates in a way that was accessible to people, um, being really honest about what was going on, but being human the whole time at the same moment, which means being funny when, you know, there are things that happen in a hospital and throughout our journey that are legitimately funny. And being able to recognize those moments, I think, made it a safer space for people to be part of. You know, I always think of Facebook as everybody's own little reality show. And, you know, well, of course, you have the ability to share what you want to share. Um, but it also is sort of opening yourself up to comments from people, um, judgments, mm -hmm. for, for better or for worse. What was the reaction when you started getting the word out through Facebook or through other means of publicity on the Internet? What was the reaction? Sure. Um, and before I comment on that, I want to I want to comment another thing that you alluded to, which is I think that Facebook, in a way, can be very lonely because what if you don't get any likes? What if you don't get any comments? It's like this you have to be one of those people who comments on your comment. Correct. Correct. No one comment, wants that. The people comment back. Correct. And then you write something like, how come no one's commenting on my comment? <laughs> and then they write back again. Correct. And it's it's a, it could be a dangerous space. So first, I think that people gravitated to our story because there was all of a sudden a feeling of an authentic community on Facebook. Um, it was authentic because it was grounded by the story of a little girl who legitimately needed their help. And I think people in today's society are craving authentic experiences and emotions and feelings, and they want to feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves. And I think a Yelich story gave them that opportunity. So having said that, or in addition to that, um, we didn't really get any weird or insulting or inappropriate Facebook comments, which is actually kind of crazy because it defies all statistics of every other Facebook post. I think that at its core, humanity is good. And I think that people recognize that this is not a place for, 
um, political commentary or other inappropriate things. And people always say to me till this day, so who are you mad at? Like, who didn't do the right thing? And honestly, I don't have that list. And it's not because I'm a wonderful person. It's because people around me were wonderful and I think acted um, wonderfully and beautifully and in a really generous way. Was there anybody who told you that maybe you're sharing too much? No, the only comment um, that we got about that is people said maybe the followers are being voyeuristic in the sense that they're just in getting something out of following, but it's pretty meaningless. And I think that through the course of the blog, which we highlighted on Facebook, what we saw was the opposite of that because we were, we were sitting in a hospital room in Cincinnati. We were in isolation with a yellet for a few months because when you undergo a transplant, you're very vulnerable. So we weren't allowed to have visitors or anything like that. And when Seth and I were with her in the room, we would have to gown up from head to toe. And it, it could be an extremely lonely experience. We received packages in the mail day after day from people who read the blog who in some way wanted to help us. So if we would write that Ayelet's latest obsession was stickers or straws, there would literally be packages of stickers and straws arriving in the mail from strangers, people we never heard of. So like totally amaze you. Amazing. And when, when things got really tough, when people knew she was in the ICU, there were Tehillim groups, there were challah baking groups, people saying Ashar Yetzer for the first time. That is not voyeuristic. These were real people partaking in a real journey and changing their lives because of it. And what's interesting is that it, it's almost like a, they're giving to you in a way and you're giving to them in a way because the fact that complete strangers could find your story, hear your story, and be moved to act, and I'm sure that you had um, people from the Jewish community acting and people who are not from the Jewish community sure. interacting with you. And the fact that, you know, I'm kind of thinking to myself, like, that would, if, if I were the person reading the blog, what would I do? You know, would I be the one to go out and, and buy a straw or buy a sticker and send that to you? And that, that's exactly right, Randy. And, I've, and I actually have been feeling the same way recently because the other thing about the blog and the people we heard from is that particularly within the Jewish community, there was incredible diversity. And in particular, there was a Hasidish woman from Brooklyn who was following our story. We're not Hasidish. Um, but yet she didn't see those boundaries that we often put up. She saw a fellow Jew in need. And for about six months after Shiva, she came over and delivered challah every single week for us. Wow. And I thought to myself exactly what you said. Would I ever do that for someone? Or would I come up with a million reasons why this person isn't really part of my community or isn't part of the sphere of people I need to to take care of, but yet she didn't see any of those boundaries and took matters into her own hands and really took care of us. We're talking to Hindi Pupko Belina Galina about her story um, with her daughter, Ayelet, and of course the story with her husband, Seth, together their struggle through Ayelet's diagnosis and her disease. And um, Hindi, what, it, what did it say to you when you heard that Ayelet's story went viral? I think I was pretty I shocked. Was, you were written up in the Huffington Post. Yeah, I think I, there was there was a lot of um, media about our story, um, particularly when we were looking for a match. There was a lot of media, and then when Ayala passed away, and I was really perplexed because I lived in a world where I saw hundreds of sick children every single day. Right. So that's not news to me that there are sick children out there, and it's not news to anyone. Anyone who's been in the world knows that this happens. 
Um, and it was perplexing. What was it about a Yelich story that drew particular attention? And we've come up with a lot of theories, none of which may be true, all of which may be true. Who knows? Number one, I think a Yelich was incredibly good looking. Yes. So I think that <laughs> helped a lot. Um, yeah, and, and attaching it, photos to your descriptions um, and, you know, the tongue-in-cheek way that sometimes you said your husband would put, you know, funny things up on the yes. blog. Um, the tongue-in-cheek way that he would write and then attach a picture to it definitely drew people in. Yeah, so I think there was just something about Ayala and her smile and her spirit that shone through and people were drawn to her. Um, and again, as I said earlier, I think it was the way that we told the story. Um, it's a very scary place for a parent to be to learn about another sick child. As you said, it's their worst nightmare. But I think we told it in a way that made them feel safe or safer to hear about it. And lastly, I think that people sensed that there was a role for them to play. And I think that it's a situation where medically there was nothing anyone could do. But at the, at the same time, there was a role for humanity to affect change, whether it was helping us feel like a yell would never be forgotten because of the drives and because of the lives that she subsequently changed, because... I think part of parents' worst nightmare about losing their kid is that people will never know them. We don't have that fear. We know people knew Ayala. She was one of the most famous two-year-olds to ever live. So we don't have that fear. But I think people intuitively sensed that there was a role for them to play some way, somehow, somewhere. And that's maybe, I think, what caught people's attention, that we needed help and this little girl needed help. And somehow that caught the hearts and minds of our people who read the blog and sort of the general media. And in a weird way also, I think that even if people weren't moved to say send a straw, send a sticker, like we said before, the fact that uh, you would read the blog sort of made you feel like, hey, I care about this little girl. And that that also makes people feel like they're doing something. Absolutely. I mean, even even if we got a like from someone um, on a post where Yella was doing something well that day or she was doing well that day, it's weird to say, but it felt good, and it felt good to know that we weren't alone and, you know, feeling that people are with you, even in a virtual sense through the blog and through Facebook, still means that people are with you. And I think today especially, um, even though there were people doing tremendous things, you still have to make it easy for people to be involved. We're so busy. There's so many demands on our schedule. And the fact that people can feel like they're participating in a way that doesn't require a huge commitment from them, but nonetheless is meaningful, right. it gets people engaged. Right. Let, let's just take a step back. I want to hear about how the blog started. So you started first on Facebook, and the blog was called is called Ayanna Yellet. Yes. How did you come up with that name? So Seth gets all the credit. So basically what happened is we were medically transported on a medical airplane um, from Sloan Kettering to Cincinnati in June. She was transported because there was broad recognition that Cincinnati um, is most uniquely positioned to be able to do the transplant of this particular disease. Once we landed, I had these pictures from this crazy transport that happens, and I was texting them, and it just we weren't really sure what to do with them. Like, do I put them on Facebook? I don't know if I should put them on Facebook. And we're like, let's just start a blog. And you know, Seth is, is in advertising, so he knows this world. He knew exactly what to do. He came up with the name. Um, it felt right to me because that's what it was. We all were just watching this little girl. We all had an eye on a yell at. 
Um, and really, Seth gets gets the credit for the name and for really taking the lead and seeing the blog through. Um, Seth and I would often take turns in Cincinnati because we were both working at the same time. And I, so there would be days where Seth would call me before 4 p.m. Seth would say, you haven't updated the blog yet. I'll get to it. Um, but we were also good at um, we're good at we we enjoyed also giving people updates on what we ate for Shabbos that week, what was cooked for us, what worked, what didn't work, because it wasn't just a blog about Ayelet's medical updates, but about our lives in the hospital. Right. And how did you manage that, keeping a full-time job and traveling back and forth and the care that your daughter needed? How did, how did you fit all that in? I guess in retrospect, it seems crazy, but at the time, it just felt normal to me. Um, I love my job, and I think it was really helpful for me to still have that piece of me. Um, it's very easy to just get caught in this weird hospital world where you're not interacting with normal society, and you don't really remember what life is like beyond the hospital. So the fact that I had my job allowed me to stay connected to the world and continue to feel like myself, even though everything around me had fundamentally changed. Um, we brought our wonderful nanny, Margaret, and her son with us to Cincinnati, which obviously helped a lot. So one of us, Seth or I, would sleep in the hospital every night, stay for rounds, and then during those afternoon hours with Margaret in the room with Ayala, we were able to then go to the cafeteria in the hospital or the computer room and just sit and do our work or whatever else we needed to do. But, you know, it was a juggling act, but one that I was happy to be able to do. You talk about sort of sharing the responsibility and how you switched off with your husband at the times. And what did you learn about your relationship at the dealing with this with another person? I mean, I think that we definitely saw, I think we were reaffirmed that we made the right choice in the sense that we really are good at really different things. So I was more than happy to be the manager. That's, you know, more in keeping with my personality, just taking charge, being obnoxious during rounds with the doctors, asking the hard questions. That was very well suited to me. Um, Seth was much better at entertaining, I yell it. It was a really hard scenario. Like, we didn't have great toys, and all the toys had to be sterilized, and she wasn't always interested in toys, and she required and demanded, as she should have, constant entertainment. And certainly as she got older. Absolutely. more challenging. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, what was also difficult is Ayelet knew exactly what she wanted, but she couldn't talk. She just didn't have that skill yet, and it would have been a hard skill for her to learn how to actually take what she wanted and say it. Um, but she knew what she wanted. So you have a challenge where she knows what she wants. None of us have any clue. And she would just point into the direction, to the direction of hundreds of items and say, ah, and we would have to figure out what the heck is she pointing at. Oh, gosh. Um, and Seth was really good at that. And I think that we saw, you know, in true form, each other's strengths and weaknesses. And thankfully, they were of a different set because there were a lot of different skills that were required. How did you keep your faith up and your spirits up through the process? So a few people, you know, have asked me that, I guess, the Amuna question, so to speak. For me personally... I don't necessarily only mean it in like an Amuna kind of way, but just okay. in general... Okay. You know. So in terms of my, I'll talk about spirits and then faith. Spirits up, it's just my nature to be optimistic. Um, I probably just do it as a survival mechanism, but I'm glad that it's my nature nonetheless. And in the day-to-day, -day, it wasn't, it was just, what's weird is whatever situation you're in, that becomes the norm. So the hospital just became the norm and human beings adapt. Um, and it didn't feel hard to keep, 
keep my spirits up. It, it didn't feel like a challenge. It was pretty much the only option because it's just not good to, to feel and think any other way. And I think we were good about just being in the moment, not thinking about well, what's going to happen next year, next year, next year, just what happened today and how do we deal with today. On the faith issue, um, for me, I don't relate to the world in a way where I say that Hashem is controlling every tiny little aspect of things. I feel that I think it was the Rambam or someone really good who said that we're not living in a time where we are Zohar or that we merit that kind of intervention by God. Um, The big things are likely divinely ordained, uh, but the smaller things, maybe we're at a time where bad things just happen and genetic things that we don't want to happen, happen. And um, so in that sense, I didn't really feel the need to blame anyone for it. Um, on the other hand, I hold a contradictory feeling where I've a- I actually felt like I saw many divine interventions that helped us throughout the way. And this may sound sound insane, but our apartment actually burnt down while we were in the hospital. Oh, gosh. Yes. <laughs> so you don't have to get into it, but obviously we weren't home. We were in the hospital. Our microwave spontaneously burst into flames. Okay. And I actually think that that was an act of God. Why? Because... After Shiva, we moved back into an apartment that was the same but different. It was familiar because that's where Ayala grew up, but it was different because it had undergone so many renovations. And I don't think we would have been able to move back in any other way. So I think, again, that the way that I reflect on it is I don't feel the anger or the need to blame God or the universe or whomever for what happened. And I actually feel like there were times when there was divine intervention that helped us along the way and certainly human intervention that helped us along the way. And I think my perception of Judaism is such that Judaism compels us to respond in the right way. It doesn't give us all the answers, uh, but one of the things it does tell us is how to act. And I think that we each grew up with very strong Jewish upbringings and we understood what the Jewish way to respond would be, and that is to find whatever positive things you can find to focus on the good and to figure out a way to continue to bring meaning to what happened and to share that with the world. I think that is such an important message for in any life struggle um, and in anything in life to, to keep that in mind. And you said that so well. I, I love that you call this your journey. Is your journey over? Where, Definitely not. Where are you on your journey? Uh, I don't know exactly where we are on the journey. I just know that it will be a life's journey. Um, and I think that Ayala will always be part of our lives. And part of that journey will be figuring out how she stays part of our lives and in what way and how we continue um, to keep her alive in our memories and in, in, the, in our community's memory. But it definitely is a journey. And I think I also probably subconsciously use that word uh, because it's been a long journey. Um, and to think that it was only a year ago that she passed away is bizarre because in some ways it feels like so much longer than that because so much has happened. So I just think it feels like it's been a long journey um, and not one that will ever be over. After Ayala passed away, you obviously were still moved to talk. What was your next step? So I think um, a few weeks after Shiva Seth and I went on a vacation, which was much needed. We spent some time in Israel, and it was it was it was 
much needed, I guess, R&R, so to speak, time together, time to ourselves. I remember even um, during Shiva, I couldn't believe that I was just, I had nothing to do. Right. You know, I was so used to waking up, by the, you know, because you of the like doctors. A, you needed like a re-entry. Yeah, it was, it was great. I was, I didn't know what to do with all this time. And I really didn't like having all this time that I wasn't used to having. Um, so I think we, sp- we, we spent some time just taking a breath and, and mourning together and mourning separately. And that's something that we're obviously still doing. Um, and I don't know when the first time was that we started speaking publicly. It must have been sometime in the summer. Um, uh, maybe a shul on the Upper West Side invited Seth to do it. And we just started once he did it once, then people asked Seth to come back. And then I was invited to do something in Teaneck, which led to something else. It just sort of happened organically. There was no conscious decision. This is what we're going to do. Um, we did a big um, fundraiser for Gift of Life um, in November. And I think there we had the opportunity to speak publicly um, in a much bigger way for the first time. It just sort of all happened naturally. Um, and I think that's how we wanted it to happen because to try to make a decision about how you're going to perpetuate your daughter's memory is much too difficult of a decision to make. Right. And we haven't made that decision. We've just sort of let things happen as they have happened, and we've thankfully been given opportunities to speak out. Do you think the fact that you were so open about it from the start made it sort of easier to keep on talking about it even after she passed away? Sure, and I also also think we felt a responsibility, even though it was natural for us to do it, that these were people who were part of the story, and in a way they deserve to hear what's going on now. Right. Just to continue, you know, they were so interested in us then, and we, we have to continue now. So so aside from all the speaking, do you have any ideas about what you're going to do in the future with the lessons you've learned from this journey? You know, there are a few, you know, little projects, which I guess might not sound so little, that I, you know, have personally just started to care about more after this. Clearly one of them is just the bone marrow registry, getting more people in it and finding that magic moment in the Jewish life cycle to engage families about it. Is it a bar and bat mitzvah program where they can sign up and then get an email when they're 18? Is it on the campus through Hillel? Is it if they go on birthright? What is that magic moment? In Israel, for instance, um, everyone is swabbed and entered into the registry when they join the army. Mm-hmm. We don't have that natural moment because you have to be 18 to be part of the registry. So finding that magic moment, I think, is critical for us. The other thing that I started to really care about is trying to combat the stigma that exists um, in our community and probably many communities around illness and what that means and just the incredible lack of education that we had and that, you know, many of us have around illness and genetics and all of that. And, you know, part of the reason why we spoke out and said the name of the disease early on was to try in some small way, albeit subconsciously, to combat that stigma and to let people know that knowledge is power and it's important to be open about these things. Um, And especially because families with um, sick children really need help, the last thing they should be worried about is what that will do, you know, for their reputation. So you didn't feel any stigma? I didn't experience it. It doesn't mean that it wasn't out there, um, but I definitely did not experience it. But I did feel like I was doing something new by naming the disease publicly in a society 
again, I don't think it's unique to the Jewish community, but in a society where people are just afraid. Right. Looking back at the last couple of years since the diagnosis or even before that and what you call the journey, is there anything that you would do differently? I don't think so. I don't think so. And I think that part of the reason why we went to the best hospital, even though it meant uprooting our lives, is so that we could say to ourselves, if it didn't work out, we did everything we could. We never, we never took the easy way out. The easy way out would have been to, you know, stay in New York, do the transplant there. Our whole community's here, but we never took the easy way out. And part of that again was selfish, so that we could say to ourselves, we, we tried. We absolutely did everything that we could. And you know, we're also in in a unique scenario because we knew the transplant would never be a cure. So our hopes for the transplant were always tempered compared to some of the other families with us in the hospital who for them they knew would be the cure. So I think... And what was it expected to do? So essentially, um, it would fix the immune component of the disease. Um, it would fix her immune system, but she would still be at 90% risk for all sorts of cancers, um, trouble growing, trouble speaking. It's just a terrible, terrible illness. Um, God willing, there will be um, advances made and kids with this illness will be able to live longer. But Ayelet had the worst of, of, of a really bad disease. What will you tell people about Ayelet in the future, about your time with Ayelet? I think it's a hard question and I think it's one that I struggle with because it's a lot easier for me to talk about the story than to talk about Ayelet as a person. That's right. Um, because obviously one is much less personal and emotional than the other. Um, I think, you know, there's, what's funny is people always wanted to know about her personality, um, but yet she was just a two-year-old. So even though there was a lot to say about her tenacity, her incredible um, love of life, her love of people, she was the happiest during rounds because she had all this attention from all these doctors, and she probably gets that from me. Um, her humor, which she obviously gets from Seth, um, and for sure her her devotion to getting what she wanted. Um, she knew what she wanted, and, you know, if you ever tried to distract her, you would never win. So I think there's a lot of things that we can say about Ayala, but I think part of our journey will be figuring out how best to communicate Ayala's spirit and personality to the community and to God-willing future children. And what do you want to tell people to do today? If they have kids, I would just say hug your kids and appreciate them. Try not to think of them as annoying, even though I I guess we all know they can be. Um, It sounds cheesy, um, but really just to be in the moment and to try to be human. You know, I think in New York we can get caught up in our jobs and our lives, and somehow we've lost our ability to be human. And I've actually, I actually have come to a conclusion that I think that You're a better professional, um, a better parent, a better whatever your job is. If you can just be a little bit more human, see the other person for who they are. We saw so many people and heard from so many people said to us, I've never told anyone, but I lost a child or I'm not, I haven't told my parents about my kids in the hospital. We have no idea what people are going through. Literally no idea. Um, And to just give the other person that little you know, benefit of the doubt for one second and to just be a little bit more human, um, both in terms of loving your own family and your only and your and your own friends, but also the people around you. 
Kinsey, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story. Where can people reach you? People can reach me on Facebook, <laughs> Hindi Pufko. And if you have any questions or comments about today's program, you can email me as well, randy at nachumsegel.com, R-A-N-D-I at nachumsegel.com. We'll be, more, we'll be back with more of something to talk about right after this.
Welcome back to Something to Talk About. I'm Randy Wartelski, and I thank you so much again for sticking with us here at the Nachum Siegel Network. We just heard Hindi Pupko so eloquently talk about her daughter, Ayala Galina's struggle with her illness and her search for a bone marrow donor. She mentioned the Gift of Life Bone Marrow Foundation. We are honored this moment to be joined, with Jay, to be joined by Jay Feinberg, who is the founder and chief executive officer of the Gift of Life Bone Marrow Foundation. Jay, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, sure thing, Randy. Thank you for having me. So, Jay, I think I remember getting swabbed years ago, and I think it was as a result of a drive for you. Is that possible? Uh, ver- could very well have been, yes. And um, how did your foundation start? Uh, it started, um, as you mentioned, um, out of my own search for a bone marrow donor when I was diagnosed uh, with leukemia in the, uh, in the uh, early 1990s. And so they started a drive, and how did they get the word out about the drive, and how many people, how many people came out? Uh, it started out very slowly um, in um, West Orange, New Jersey, where I'm from. And uh, before we knew it, um, drives started happening everywhere. We were getting calls from all over the country, from Canada, from Israel, from everywhere, um, with the uh, hope of running drives and trying to find a match for me and the countless other patients out there. And one, one thing that was um, not known at the time um, by many people was the fact that tissue type is inherited, like the color of your eyes or your hair. So your best chance of finding a, ma- a genetic match is someone who shares a similar ethnic background. And since um, I'm Jewish, there were really very few Jewish donors in the registry, so there was an urgent need. And how has that number of Jewish registrants in the directory, how has in the registry, how has that grown over the last 16 years, is it? Yeah, yeah. Well, since my, my transplant in, uh, in, my, in 1995, we've added another um, 221,000 um, donors um, from uh, Jewish communities um, all over North, North America. And we facilitated transplants for uh, approximately 2,600 patients out there. How did you encourage to get people to come out on behalf of Jay Feinberger? How did others encourage people to come out on your behalf? Uh, I think people were motivated by by the story. Um, you know, someone uh, in their community who needed a transplant, um, and they saw a name and a face on a flyer, and it was just really very moving. It said urgent appeal um, to find a uh, a bone marrow donor for Jay Feinberg, and without one, he wouldn't survive. And um, we were just so overwhelmed to see the show of support. People really came out to um, save the life of someone they really didn't know before and um, and didn't know if they were going to be a match or not, but um, but they did it anyway. They waited on long lines to get tested. Um, and uh, and sure enough, thank God, the very last person we tested was my match. Yeah. What do you remember about that time of your life? Um, I, I remember um, what I and what I will never forget is um, all of the friends who I got to know, all of the people out there who um, who became my friends because they cared enough to help me, people who volunteered to run donor drives all over the country, all over the world, um, for someone they didn't know and, frankly, may never have even had the opportunity to meet, and yet they cared enough to help save a life. And that's what I'll never forget. And I'll certainly never forget the fact that a young lady um, saved the life of a total stranger, me, and that um, that continues to this day with our work. You know, people save the lives of people um, they don't know, um, and yet they do it because um, because they they care. You know, they they want to help save a life. Pikuach nefesh. 
So you said that your donor was the very last donor that was tested. That's correct. And were you at a point where it was like, if we don't find someone by this date, we got to give up? Yeah, I was actually all ready to receive a transplant with a donor who was uh, a multiple mismatch and was um, definitely not the ideal um, donor, but we really didn't have a choice. And then um, the very last drive was run at a small um, uh, yeshiva in Milwaukee, the Wisconsin Institute of Torah Study. And, uh, and thank God, a young lady by the name of Becky Fabisoff um, uh, was tested, and she was the very last person tested at that drive, and she turned out to be my match. I've heard people say um, bone marrow recipients whose transplant was, was successful, I've heard them say that they cel- like to celebrate two birthdays, the actual day in which they were born and yes. then the day that they received their transplant. Correct. What went through your mind when you heard that there was a donor that was a perfect match for you? And what do you think back when you look back at the day you were told your transplant went well? Uh, it, uh, it was just a true miracle. You know, I was on chemotherapy for four years searching for a donor. Um, because, as I mentioned, there were very few Jews in the registry. The Jewish community was woefully underrepresented. And we weren't sure if we were going to find a match, but we kept very positive. And, uh, and you know, we were, we, it was just a true miracle when Becky was found um, and when we were told about two weeks after the transplant that her, her bone marrow cells um, took hold and started to pr- produce healthy cells. And, uh, it, you know, it just was a remarkable thing. And it just reinforces, um, and to me and my family, just reinforced um, the power of the individual, the power of one. That, um, you know, sometimes when we hear from people, I don't need to join the registry because, you know, what are the chances that I'll ever get called as a match? Well, the fact is it only takes one person to make that match. And, uh, and you know, it happens every day. I think your story is so revolutionary because, I mean, you know, your name is like a famous name. I think at the time you, I mean, I was living in New York and your face was everywhere and your name was everywhere. And I think the fact that you were able to bring out so many people in a drive on your behalf uh, was so revolutionary, certainly for the Jewish community. Um, when you look back at that time, how does it uh, affect the, the foundation that you run today? Uh, well, certainly, you know, after I had my transplant um, and I was um, asked actually by um, the law school that I had been accepted to at the time, right before I was diagnosed, and they asked me if I wanted to return and go to law school, and my answer was no. I wanted a continued gift of life. Wow. Um, I, you know, we wanted to do that because what we had created was extraordinary, and that was a network of extraordinary people who gave of themselves um, uh, unreservedly to help save the lives of people out there. And that's the reason why we continued Gift of Life, and that's why it's grown into what it is today. Um, and uh, we will not rest until we find a match for every patient in need. I remember that um, when I was first diagnosed and the first doctor who I saw at a very large hospital, uh, he told me I would never find a match. And we asked why, and he said, because of my ethnic background, because I was Jewish, and there just weren't any Jewish donors in the registry. And he told me to go home and prepare my bucket list. And I always tell people that, you know, my whole family was in that little room when I was diagnosed, including my mother. And I always tell people the doctor knew a lot about leukemia and transplants, but he knew nothing about what we call the Jewish mother effect. Uh And as soon as my mother heard 
that I needed a transplant to save my life. It was a no-brainer to her. Let's run more drives, get more Jewish people into the registry, and overcome the devastating effects of the Holocaust, which severed bloodlines. So was that your family's first reaction was, okay, if this is what we need to do, we need to get the word out, and we need to get things moving? Yes, yes. And and that's why today um, we won't rest, and, and we haven't achieved our mission until there um, are no more patients who are ever told to go home and prepare their bucket list. We want to be able to tell every patient who comes to us that we have a match for them. The process of being tested is fairly simple, right? Correct. It's just a swab in the cheek. Yep. Why do you think some people are still so wary, scared, nervous, anxious about it? I think because people still, um, despite um, all of our progress over the years, still don't fully understand what's involved if you're called as a match. And um, while the, the technology has changed dramatically with the testing, it used to be a blood test, and now, as you said, it's a simple cheek swab, the actual donation itself has changed a lot, too. When I was searching for a donor, if you became a donor, you had to donate bone marrow from the back of your pelvic bone in an operating room. Um, today, people actually don't have to do that. They go into a blood center. They're connected to a machine that separates the, the, the blood stem cells out of their circulating blood system, and they watch a movie while they're doing it. So literally, um, after the movie is over and they're disconnected, they go home and they have dinner and they go about their daily life. And while they're, while they're sitting back at home with their family after they donated those, uh, those cells on that machine that day, um, those cells are packed up in a cooler and they're delivered to the patient no matter where the patient may be, whether it's in Israel or whether it's across the country in, in Los Angeles. And it's simple and it, it's, it's much easier than it used to be. And I think if more people knew that, I think they would be much more inclined to join the registry. Most so it's definitely. Part, part of that awareness that we need to build. Most definitely. And what, what strikes me also is you're saying that you, after you watch your movie and you go home, you could be thinking about the fact that you're saving somebody's life. Isn't that remarkable? In about the same time that, you know, you could be standing in line at the bank. Exactly. Exactly. That, that's pretty amazing. So you talked about getting the word out, and I know you have an event going on um, through April 30th, Swapapalooza. Correct. And what does that entail? Um, it, it's an event that we came up with to try to raise awareness um, and encourage people to join the registry, even if it, there is not a drive in their local area. Um, at any given time, we run between 30 and 50 or 60 drives um, uh, at, in, in any given period of time, in any given um, two-month period. And, and yet, there, you know, we can't run a drive everywhere. So we've come up with a way for people to be able to register, um, get their cheek swab kit sent to them in the mail in their home, and then be able to return it so that we can get it tested at the lab. And the goal of Swabapalooza is to encourage people to, get to um, go on our website, order their kit using a special code that we've set up um, for Swabapalooza, and um, very simply, uh, you know, do their cheek swab at home and return it in the mail. So it's really, it's, it's, it's that simple, and it's something that we're encouraging people to do. And we're also encouraging people through social media to spread the word let people know how easy it is and encourage their friends, family, coworkers to, to all get tested and join the registry and continue spread, spreading the word in a very viral way. That's pretty amazing. You can self-swab. That's, that's, that's a pretty amazing thing that, there's, that you can do that at home. That's right. 
That's right. And, you know, years ago it used to be, um, you know, a nurse who would take the blood from your arm, and today you just swab your own cheek. So it's definitely much less scary and and not requiring too much effort because you don't have to actually go to a center. You don't have to go to a place. You can get the kit. The kit comes to you. You do it. You send it off, and you could potentially save somebody's life. Exactly. And once you get tested, let's say you don't match anybody right away, how long does your registry stay in the registry? Um, you, you stay in the registry until your 61st birthday. So once you swab, you don't need to swab again. Um, when you're in, you're in until you turn 61 years old. So you could get a call at any time, at any point, and somebody tell you that you've become a match and that you, you could donate bone marrow to somebody. Correct. That, that's amazing. When, um, when we spoke earlier with Hindi Pupko, she was talking about uh, Facebook and how she utilized, and I know you mentioned it as well, social media to get the word out. How different is it today to get the word out about a drive or about an event that's going on than it was 16 years ago when, when the drive was for Jay Feinberg? Right, right. Well, obviously very different. It's, you know, it's so immediate now, um, and, uh, and virtually anybody can do it. I, I think at the time that I was diagnosed, um, the, the whole concept of donating bone marrow to strangers was so new um, that uh, that the, the the media wanted to cover it because it was something um, that was so cutting edge. Right. Um, but it required obviously human interest stories going into the newspapers and waiting for those to come out and for people to see them. Uh, today, naturally, all you have to do is post it on Facebook or tweet about it on Twitter, and before you know it, um, you know you've you've got people um, reaching out to uh, to get tested immediately. So it certainly has revolutionized the way that we. Um, we raise awareness and uh, encourage people to get tested. That's um, certainly the case. And, in fact, we have over 150,000 people on our Facebook page today, which is um, gift of life. Wow. And when you talk about the media covering your story, what do you say to people who are in need of a bone marrow transplant, who are wary to put themselves out there? Uh, you know, I certainly respect people's concern um, and uh, sometimes even fear about um, going public about the need. Um, so, uh, you know, and certainly we respect anybody's feelings about that and we don't pressure anybody to do it. But, I, you know, if I take off the hat of the head of the registry and I put on my hat of, um, of leukemia survivor and transplant recipient, right. I can tell the patients out there from personal experience that it makes all the difference. Um, it, seeing a, um, a person's um, face and their story um, on a flyer or in a human interest story in the newspaper, that's what makes it real and that's what motivates people to come out on behalf of that individual. Most definitely. Uh, yeah. So it's, I, I think um, if people are comfortable with it, it's, it's an extremely um, effective way to, um, to encourage people to come out and get tested, but certainly we respect everybody's feelings on the, on the matter. How long after your transplant did you get to meet your donor? Uh, it was uh, about 13 months. You can meet actually one year after the transplant. So shortly a year after the transplant, um, my family um, flew out to Chicago, which is where Becky's family is from. Um, and that was at a time, you know, before, naturally, before 9-11, when people um, used to be able to come out to the gate to meet their loved ones at the, um, you know, when you get off the plane. And Becky's whole family was, was out there um, at O'Hare International Airport um, waiting for my family to get off the plane with a big um, banner. And um, when we all got off the plane, we were just in tears. 
Wow. Yeah, that's you pretty know, amazing. Very emotional. Now, you have a, uh, a gala coming up at the end of May? Yes, we do. What's that about? Uh, so each year for the past uh, 13 years, we hold a, a gala called our Partners for Life Gala, and it's a celebration of life. Um, we actually introduce um, donor-recipient pairs, usually two or three donor-recipient pairs on stage, one year post-transplant, and enable all of our supporters and, um, and people who are involved in the organization who come to the gala to experience firsthand and witness firsthand the meeting of a donor and recipient so that you can see what all of their hard work volunteering and, and raising funds and making contributions have resulted in. You know, it really shows the direct and measurable impact of their giving by seeing the donors and recipients meet for the first time. So that's, um, that's what the gala is all about, and uh, we've been doing it for 13 years. It's going to be on Tuesday, May 21st um, this year at the uh, New York Grand Hyatt, and we encourage people to uh, you know, go to our website to learn more information about it. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty emotional event. Yes, that's why we put uh, we put uh, Kleenex on the uh, on the tables, <laughs> on the and and first timers have no clue why our centerpiece is a box of Kleenex, but they learn pretty quickly why. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, Jay, we're out of time, but it's been such an honor to talk to you. How can people contact your foundation? Absolutely, it's very simple. They can go on our website at www.giftoflife.org, or they can call us at one eight hundred nine marrow. Thanks so much. Absolutely, thank you. And thank you so much for joining us here today on Something to Talk About on the Nahum Siegel Network. If you have any questions or comments about today's program, please email me, randy at nachumsegel.com. That's R-A-N-D-I at nachumsegel.com. Today we hope we've given you something to talk about. Let's give them something to talk about. Something to talk about. Let's give them something to talk about.